Well, I know this is going to sound like uh, I grew up in pioneer days, but, you know, I went to a one-room country schoolhouse from kindergarten to sixth grade, and um, it would, it, this school did not have running water, okay? And now it did have a, an underground cistern and a pump. You didn't really have to pump it, just kind of lift the handle. And then every morning we would take in uh, buckets of water uh, to bring in for drinking and washing. And uh, so that, that was fine. And, and, uh, and then, as you can guess, that also meant that we had outhouses, right? And, and the boys was a, a one-holer about the size of a porta potty And then the girls, they had a similar one, except they had sort of a little side room where they could wait for one another outside of the wind. I never did understand why the girls got that and we didn't, but whatever, right? Whatever. And uh, so when I was about in first grade, um, the game for the day, we didn't play it that often, but the game for that day, that afternoon, was hide-and-seek. And, seek. and uh, I remember one particular time, uh, Sid was it. He was a fifth grader, probably he was older than me. And uh, uh, as soon as he started counting, one of the older girls kind of grouped us all together and said, hey, let's go hide in the girl's outhouse. He'll never find us there. And uh, so all of us, and I don't know how many students there were, maybe about 15 of us boys and girls, uh, we crammed ourselves quietly into the girl's outhouse. And uh, I was in the outer room. Maybe all the boys were in the outer room, I'm not sure. And, but I remember looking through a little crack, and I could see Sid out there going, where is everybody, you know? Uh, and of course, you know, in a school ground, there aren't that many places to hide, you know. Where, we couldn't figure out where we were going. Uh, now, after, resource, after recess was over, um, our teacher learned about our little escapade. She was not too impressed. She put the kibosh on that right away. But you know, all these years later, I have never forgotten that game of hide-and-seek and that perfect hiding place. Uh, when I was in high school, a book came out uh, called The Hiding Place. I don't know if any of you remember it, written by Corey Ten Boom. Uh, and it was made then a few years later in a movie, which, by the way, is available on YouTube. I haven't seen it in decades. Uh, Corrie ten Boom was born into a Dutch Christian family in the Netherlands. And in about 1940, she's in middle age, living with her father and sister. And they begin hiding Jews, fleeing Nazi Germany in a little room that they've kind of been able to make secret in their house. And then the Jews would stay there until they got word it was safe for them to go on to the next step of their journey to freedom uh, through the assistance of the Dutch underground. Eventually, Corey and her family are arrested, uh, taken to a labor camp in the Netherlands, and then later shipped to a concentra concentration camp in Germany. Uh, Corey did survive uh, after the war got out of that. Uh, the title of her book is, of course, based on that little hiding room, that, that, that room in the secret room in her house called The Hiding Place. And, but it also comes from a prayer in one of the Psalms of the Bible where it says, you are my hiding place. In the New Testament, excuse me, in the New International Version, it's translated today as, you are my refuge. You know, this idea of refuge, it was, it was important in the Bible. 
especially in Old Testament days. You know, when God gave uh, the, the law to the, to the Israelites there at Mount Sinai, one of the provisions that was made for them is that when you get into the new uh, land, the promised land, uh, you're going to designate certain cities as cities of refuge. What did that mean? Well, uh, let's say that your, your prize bull somehow breaks free and gores your neighbor and kills him. And your neighbor's brother wants to kill you in revenge. Well, you have the right to a fair trial. So to make sure you're safe, you flee to a city of refuge. And they are uh, prepared to guarantee your safety during and be, uh, before and during the trial so that you can be judged according to the law, not according to revenge. So literally speaking, a refuge is a place where you can hide from someone who would harm you. And you would hide in a cave or in somebody's house. You know, in the days of Joshua, uh, we're told that Rahab uh, from Jericho hid two Israelite spies on the roof of her house under a pile of flax. That was their refuge. So then the word refuge, uh, in the literal sense, gets borrowed to speak of our relationship with God. So let's open our Bibles now to uh, Psalm 11, page 541 in the Pew Bible. Uh, by the way, we also have some free New International Version Bibles out in the foyer at the Connection Center. So if you need a Bible, go get one after worship today. Uh, I would love to have you go home and then reread Psalm 11 and think about what you've learned today. It, it, it contains this, this idea of refuge. So Psalm 11 is a psalm of trust, and the opening line sets the tone. The first sentence says, In the Lord I take refuge. Now, obviously, God is not a, a little room you hide in, so it is a metaphor for trust. Here's what I, I put together kind of a summary sentence about the, the message for today and uh, for about Psalm 11, and here it is. When life gets scary and out of control, take refuge in God. He's still on the throne. Let's say it together, shall we? When life gets scary and out of control, take refuge in God. He's still on the throne. Think about that. And the situations and challenges that you face in your life when life gets scary. Let's try it again. Let's say it again. When life gets scary and out of control, take refuge in God. He's still on the throne. Uh, think about what that looks like. Have you, ever, have you ever been abandoned by a friend? You know, not just a casual friend, but somebody that uh, you ate with and you went for walks with, and you, you worked on projects with, and you laughed until you fell on the floor with. I mean, that kind of friend. And then this person abandons you without a word, doesn't call back, won't reply to your text messages. And you see them about, you know they're okay. And it hurts. It feels personal. But there is one who will not abandon you, no matter your situation. When I lose my job, I take refuge in the Lord. When I'm dealing with a hateful, spiteful person, 
I take refuge in the Lord when I am afraid that I'm going to fail. I take refuge in the Lord when I get an alarming diagnosis. I take refuge in the Lord. I say, God, I am trusting you to hold me and hang on to me. You are my refuge. When life gets scary and out of control, our, our control, take refuge in God. He's still on the throne. I was thinking this past week about the words refuge and refugee. I don't know that I'd really consciously been realizing the relationship of those, but anyway, I, learned, I did some investigation. I learned this week that our word refugee first came into use in the 1680s to describe the Huguenots from France. Now, the Huguenots were a Protestant group in, at the time uh, when, when the king of France uh, made the decree that everybody in, in his country had to be Catholic. So uh, a bunch of the Huguenots, they, they fled France for other countries looking for places of refuge. Some of them came to England, and they began to be called refugees. Maybe we are all spiritual refugees. We live in this world, but when we belong to Christ, we know that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And when we're, when we're in trouble, we know where to turn. I love what the prophet Isaiah says when he's praying to God. He says, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress. In times of distress, we know where to turn. And you know, I was thinking as God's people, we should be like God in this respect. Our community of faith should be a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress. So, if you still have your Bible open, what we're going to do now is we're going to walk quickly through the rest of the psalm, uh, starting with that last part of verse 1. And uh, I can just imagine the psalmist, uh, that he's having a conversation and he's responding to his unbelieving neighbor uh, and, and quotes this unbelieving neighbor. Uh, he says, how long, the psalmist says, how then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? My sense is that the unbelieving neighbor has been saying, hey, don't put your trust in God. God's not going to help you. I mean, if you stay here, you're a sitting duck. And in verse 2, the unbelieving neighbor is, is trying to convince you that, hey, things are too bad. I mean, God might help you in little things, but this is serious. God's not going to help you here. For look, the wicked bend their bows and they set their arrows against the string to shoot the, uh, from the shadows at the upright in heart. Now, who are these wicked people? Now, they could be Israel's enemies attacking them from other nations, real arrows. But we could also see these arrows as temptations. Uh, people shooting arrows of temptation at us, trying to get us to join them in their violence or their greed or sexual sin. In the New Testament, uh, the letter to the Ephesians reminds us that our real enemy is not people, right? Our real enemy is not other people. The real enemy is the evil that inspires uh, and sometimes controls people who are shooting these arrows of threat and temptation against us. Ephesians 6.16 tells us to take up the shield of faith. 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows from the evil one. Holding up that shield of faith is like saying, I take refuge in the Lord. So when the flaming uh, arrows of fear fly my way, I take refuge in the Lord. When the flaming arrows of skepticism threaten to, to shred my faith and pull it apart, I take refuge in the Lord. When the flaming arrows of temptation are aimed at my heart, I say, I trust you, Lord. Be my refuge. In verse 3, the unbelieving neighbor says that, hey, let me tell you, things are so bad, it's useless to trust in God. He says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, the world's falling apart before our very eyes. The, mora the morality of society is crumbling. How, how can our children or our grandchildren survive in a world like this? And the naysaying neighbor argues, hey, what good is it to follow God? What good is it to trust in God? And the psalmist responds firmly and defiantly, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Will you say that with me? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. And to say the Lord is in his holy temple to an ancient Israelite meant that God is with us. He hasn't gone anywhere. He has not abandoned us. And then to say the Lord is on his heavenly throne meant that God is still in charge of this world. You know, there's a lot going on. on the, we know today, and it was back, true back then too, there's a lot of, that goes on in the world that runs counter to God's rule. But the Lord is still directing his agenda into this world. And he has a plan for this world that he's going to take to completion. So let's say our summary statement again, shall we? When life gets scary and out of control, take refuge in God. He's still on the throne. And because he's on the throne, we know that he sees everything. He knows what's going on. Verse 5 says, He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. And the word translated examine comes from a Hebrew word uh, giving us the picture of melting metal under fire to see what it's really made of. And if it's gold or silver, then this, this melting under fire is how it gets purified. And so God sees the hardships and the threats that you're going through, and he will not abandon you. He, now, he, he, he may allow it to happen, and sometimes we get upset with God for what he allows to happen. I understand that. But I also know that he, that he will use it to purify you, to make your faith stronger and more beautiful and more valuable. Verse 5 continues that idea. It says, the Lord examines the righteous. But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Now, that's strong language, isn't it? The, the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament will occasionally uh, read that God hates uh, some people. And, and it's not the way we think of hate and, and use the word hate. It means that God opposes what they do. God stands against their wicked actions. 
But we also know that those wicked actions carry consequences. And we see in verse 6 a kind of a, a depiction of that. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Now older translations call this what? Fire and brimstone. Yeah. And it recalls what God did to the ancient city of Sodom in the book of Genesis. Sodom was a city where God could not even find ten people who were not corrupted with evil to the core. Sodom is where uh, all the men of the city gathered to try to rape a pair of travelers. Well, these travelers were messengers from God come to rescue Lot and his wife and their two daughters. And uh, they led them to escape, but the city was destroyed by this flaming sulfur uh, falling from the sky, at least how it's described in the Bible. Maybe today we would say that large flaming meteorites came down and annihilated the city and the surrounding countryside. Who knows? Seems harsh, doesn't it? We wonder, why is that in the Bible? But you know, you, you read the Bible, there are other times when God uh, takes action in judgment. Um, that's what the story of Noah and the flood is all about, right? I mean, we like to focus on the animals two by two, but, but it's a story of judgment. The, the human race was so corrupt that it's all, the only hope for God's great experiment uh, on the earth was to destroy most of them. And then there was the time when God saved the Israelites, remember, from slavery in Egypt, and, and uh, they, they crossed uh, uh, the sea, and, and the waters were, were blown back by the wind all night. And then when the Egyptians tried to cross on their chariots, the waters came crashing down upon them, and none of them survived. You see, God's judgment is always a part of God's salvation, right? Judgment and salvation go hand in hand. Uh, Julie and Timothy Tennant say, there are two, they, they, judgment and salvation, they are two sides of one reality. For there can be no action of mercy on behalf of the oppressed without judgment upon the oppressors. And then verse 7, the last verse. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And that last line is looking to the future because you know there's a lot that happens in our world today that is not justice, that's not righteousness, and sometimes God does seem hidden from us. But the last line looks to the future. There will be a day when we who take refuge in the Lord, we will see his face. And when we do, it will be the face of Jesus and he will welcome us home. And for now, we await that day knowing that God, when we stand with God, God is already standing with us. You know, as a United Methodist pastor, I was trying to think about in what way does it mean, what does it mean to me that God is a refuge? And here's what I thought of. As a United Methodist pastor, it's scary for me not knowing What's going to happen to our denomination? I mean, it's probably going to happen this year. And, and, and how is it going to affect this church? And 
how is it going to affect me? Because I believe it is likely, not certain, but likely that the United Methodist Church will become ununited, in a sense. It will separate into two or three denominations, and I still wish it wouldn't happen. I mean, that's just where I'm at. I wish it wouldn't happen. Very soon I'm going to be preparing a series of articles about this, little pieces, um, so that you can be better informed, kind of leading up to general conference in May and, and what's going to follow. And I can tell you this, I cannot make it go away. And I don't know what will happen. But I expect that we're going to have to deal with some big changes and some big challenges, and our faith will be tested. And we will have to decide what our refuge is. Is our refuge our denomination, the way it's always been? Or is our refuge God? So what does it mean to you? What thing are you going through that you need a refuge? Let's say our statement one more time, shall we? When life gets scary and out of control, take refuge in God. He's still on the throne. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, this world is full of threats and um, temptations aimed at us, these flaming arrows that fly our way. Lord, we are so often confused and conflicted and we need a shelter. We need a hiding place, a secret place, a safe place. And somehow, Lord, you represent that to us. And we will cling to you uh, because you are reliable, you are faithful, dependable. And Lord, we are looking forward to that day when... uh, this, your reign will be complete and you will bring healing to it and you will bring heaven and earth together into one glorious creation and every, all things will be restored. Lord, we ask that you will walk with us through this week to come and we want to claim you as our refuge. In you we put our trust. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.